Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your host, Megan Bull. And today we are here with Caroline Deason. Thank you for being here, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's our pleasure to have you. So just to start us off very broadly, can you tell us what program you're in and very generally what you are studying? Sure. So I am in the PhD at the uh, English department at Western. Um, so it's technically the the Department of uh, English and Writing Studies, I believe now is what they're calling it. Um, anyway, so my dissertation uh, and my research is about um, three plays having to do with the Salem witch trials. So what are those plays exactly? Because I'm going to bet maybe one of them is The Crucible. You're right. One is The Crucible. So um, that's my my third play. The other two are from the 19th century, so the century before The Crucible. Um, one is called Giles Corey of the Salem Farms, and that's by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the other one is called Giles Corey Yeoman by Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman. All right. That This sounds really interesting. And I've heard about the Salem Witch Trials, but I realized as I was looking up a bit of research for this podcast, I don't know much about it. Could you just give us kind of a general overview about where the Salem Witch Trials happened other than, of course, Salem and, and when and kind of what that was all about? Sure. So it's actually really interesting that you say that because the whole kind of reason that I'm I'm doing that I chose to do my dissertation on these three plays is because no one really understands what actually happened in Salem. And I, I don't mean that in kind of like a, a glossy, like esoteric way. I mean, because um, all of our information about what happened at the Salem witch trials is filtered through narratives. Um, and, you know, it's a, a regular thing to to say, it's, it's contentious, but a lot of people talk about how history is a narrative and history, you know, there's that that adage that history is written by the winners. And what that implies is that history is never objective. And I'm not a historian, I'm in the English department. And so if you had a historian here talking to me, um, they you know, might have strong opinions on that. But my point is that even if you were to try and look at historical records of what happened in the Salem witch trials, even the historical records we have are filtered through someone else's opinion, someone's, um, uh, understanding of what was happening at the time. So the fact that, you know, if you don't know much about the Salem witch trials, you're actually, that's par for the course when it comes to uh, the witch trials in general, which I think is really interesting. Um, so I've been to Salem a few times and the very first time I went, I was in grade 10. And I remember being very surprised at how um, the kitsch and like tourism of the Salem witch trials is like overwhelming. And you can get t-shirts that have a burning pyre on it. So like some, like where a witch would burn. And it says, I got lit in Salem, which is like, yeah, really, really not appropriate, <laughs> but also um, completely false. No uh, witches were ever burnt at the stake um, in the United States um, with maybe like one or two exceptions in the South um, that, you know, I don't go into at all because my research is specifically about what happened in Salem. Salem is a town in Massachusetts, um, just outside of Boston. So it was part of, you know, the original, um, uh, colonial, um, uh, settlements in, uh, Massachusetts and the execution method in Salem was hanging, 
with the exception of of one man who was tortured to death, uh, not as execution, but it was it was he died um, by uh, by torture before entering a plea. So they happened in 1692, and even in 1692, uh, witch trials were not popular uh, in the United States. They were certainly not popular in um, Europe at that point. And while they were going on, people in England were writing um, uh, newspaper articles about how backwards things must be in the colonies because of what's going on there. They were really damning um, this really old-fashioned, superstitious stuff that was going on in the colonies. So 1692 is actually not that long ago. And it's, it, I mean, it feels long ago, but uh, especially in the context of, you know, the European witch trials, it's much more, more recent. So yeah, so 1692, um, outside of Boston in a place called Salem, Massachusetts. But that's another thing is that it's not in the Salem that you go to today to visit. Um, that was Salem town. It happened, most of the witches, so-called witches, uh, lived in the village of Salem, which is now called Danvers. And the reason that that place is called Danvers is because they literally changed their name to get to, um, you know, distance themselves from the Salem witch trials. So... Okay, that's that's a lot of these these facts you were telling me really go against what I knew about the witch trials or like common knowledge there. Yeah. Especially also what the plays, at least the crucible, that's the one that I know, yeah. um, definitely denotes itself or denotes Salem and the witch trials as. So there's no Abigail Williams or anything. So, so there there was an Abigail Williams. Oh. Um so the crucible is a really interesting um uh example because Arthur Miller um I don't know if you you read the crucible um or maybe you've seen it or something but the crucible is is strange in that the the play itself has so many notes to it that are Arthur Miller explaining the historical background for what he's about to write so it's like every scene he has like two or three pages explaining here's what actually happened versus like based on my research and here's why I made these changes so for instance in um real life Abigail Williams was I think around 11 or something and in the movie and in the play I should say they make her 17 um, and then in the movie, she's played by Winona Ryder and Winona Ryder was like 23 or something at the time. So it's <laughs> a whole, you know, another, another thing. But the reason that, uh, Arthur Miller did that is because he wanted to have a love story, um, between, you know, this love triangle between, um, uh, John Proctor, Elizabeth Proctor, his wife and, um, Abigail Williams. So, um, he, and he says this in the, in the, the notes to the, the play, play itself, he talks about how I've, 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 um, made all of the so-called afflicted girls older than they were uh, in history, um, and partly because he wanted to to serve that um, love triangle aspect. Jilted lover is a better way of talking about it than a love triangle. There's not a lot of love <laughs> going on there. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, I have not heard of this play, so this is kind of good. We have one, one host who doesn't know, one who does, but can you tell us about the other ones? Because you said you had three. So what other plays are you looking at and how did you choose them? What was it about them that they made it into your dissertation? Yeah. So originally my dissertation was actually just going to have one chapter on plays about the Salem Witch Trials. And then I was going to do another chapter on um, some like stories that mention witches in the same area or sorry, era. Um, and then I realized that there was so much to say about just these three plays that I decided 
to do the whole dissertation on just these three, which is actually a great thing. Like if, if you're writing a dissertation, it's awesome to just be able to be like, oh, good, I'm like much narrower now. Um, so the reason that I chose these three is because each of them features uh, a character who is a real character, um, like a real historical character whose name is Giles Corey. And he's the one that I mentioned earlier who was tortured to death rather than hanged. Um, and so each of these plays characterizes Giles Corey in a very different way. And each of those characterizations is different from the historical characterizations that we have. So another neat thing about this, my project and the Salem witch trials in general, is that all three of the playwrights, so two of them working in the 19th century, Longfellow and Wilkins Freeman, and then one of them working in the 20th century, Arthur Miller, all three of them talk about how the one of the major sources of um, historical research that they have for the Salem witch trials aspects of their of their play, um, for the historical aspects of their play, is a book that was written by the former mayor of Salem, whose name is Charles Upham. And he was like an armchair historian type of guy who decided that I think when he retired that he wanted to write a, a, a history of, of this city that he had been mayor of. And so a big chunk of it is about um, the witch trials. And so he does his own primary research using the documents from the witch trials that I'll come back to in a second. And he wrote this, this uh, book. This book is filtered through his own, um, you know, he's making his own subjective uh, decisions on motives that these characters, and I say characters like tongue in cheek because these are real people, but he's 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 come up with this narrative of what happened in Salem that he presents as being historical fact and you know as I said before you can argue that all history writing is uh, a type of this um but because of his characterizations of people like Giles Corey um the playwrights that now are using this as inspiration um decide to you know characterize Giles Corey differently. So for instance, in the Longfellow play, Giles Corey is an old man who is um, really, uh, he's old, but he's really strong and he's virile and he's really hot-headed. Um, and in that way, he commands quite a lot of respect. In the Wilkins Freeman, Freeman story, he is um, kind of silly in that he is easily impressionable, but he also it commands respect and he has a really um noble turn like when he realizes what he's done wrong he, he he's characterized very nobly in the arthur miller uh crucible play he is basically comic relief he is kind of like an old fuddy-duddy doesn't really know what he's doing um he uh you know has is really quick to forget things and he just says it's a lot of like comic relief type of um uh, uh, characterization. And so these three plays characterize this, this real life person th these three different ways. Um, Charles Upham characterized him a different way. Uh, and then the interesting part on that too is what Charles Upham was using were the historical documents of the, the Salem Witch Trials. And when I, I went to Salem a couple of years ago, just before COVID, um, to do research, which was great. I, I got to see like the original documents and everything. But What's strange about the Salem Witch Trials is that we don't have any documents that were written during the trials themselves, as in like in stenographer in the trial mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are no documents that exist that like list what everybody was saying or 
anything like that. What we do have are things like affidavits that, um, you know, when the, the court would go and ask someone to give a testimonial or a an accusation or something against one of the accused, um, we have uh, um, warrants for arrest that have, you know, a little bit of information. And then what we have are kind of like journal entries and letters and other things that people wrote about having been there in, in the trial that day. They go home and write down what happened. Um, and a lot of these times they'll write down, you know, it, they almost wrote it down like a script, like Judge Sewell said this, and then Giles Corey said this, and Judge Sewell said this, and Giles Corey said this. But it's interesting because every so often it'll say something like, and then Giles Corey said something that doesn't matter. Then Judge <laughs> Sewell said this. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, yeah. it's not objective at all. And it's up to that person, whoever wrote it down to say, oh, it doesn't matter. So even, even our actual so-called, you know, objective primary documents are so heavily narrativized they're so heavily um uh telling a story rather than you know any sort of ob objective truth um so i decided that i would use these three plays that characterize this one person because it's it is nice to have a, a narrow narrow narrowed down a little bit and and compare how he's characterized in these three plays versus how he's characterized in these charles the charles upham um book and then versus the actual documents themselves and to just kind of see what that says about how these these three authors Longfellow, Wilkins Freeman and uh, Miller um, what type of person they wanted to present and what it reflects about when they were writing um, what the the greater um, maybe feeling or emotion they wanted to convey in their entire work overall. Uh, Giles Corey is the main character in the first two plays uh, he's a, a secondary, maybe even tertiary character in the Crucible, so that is a, a big, quite a big difference. Um, but the Cruci you like my my one of my supervisors basically said you can't write about the Salem witch trials without talking about the Crucible, <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why the Crucible is there. Well, that kind of goes into my next question when you you talk about uh, the way that Giles Corey was characterized. Mm -hmm. My question would be. It's, it's really interesting that, you know, it, it differs from the historical accounts and the plays themselves, how they characterize them. It's also different. Right. Why do these interpretations matter? Like, does it say something about how they wanted to convey the historical character or what's what's the overarching idea there? The reason that I decided to work on uh, Wilkins Freeman specifically, for instance, I was kind of doing like broader research about the dissertation back in the earlier stages almost like a what some people do as a um, literature review because you don't really do that so much necessarily in the English department unless it's you know very specific to what you're doing but if you're if you're kind of just looking at literature you don't need a literature review in the same sense as like a historian might or a, a sociologist might but I was kind of doing this as as in casting a wide net and being like, here are a whole bunch of um, pieces of American literature that concern themselves with the Salem witch trials, and I'm going to comment on them. And so I found this one by Wilkins Freeman, who I'd never heard of before. Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman is a writer who is extremely popular in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. She was often compared very favorably to Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, and she was very well regarded and then just fell out of popularity completely. Um, she's, I think, now seeing a little bit more of a resurgence with a lot of people trying to make sure that, you know, we reevaluate the canon and try to include more women for for one. Um, but I had never heard of her. So I went to kind of do 
um, just like a little bit of research in the in the background to try and see if I could beef up a little section that I wanted to explain who she was. So I found this uh, biography about her. And in the biography, um, the author of the biography has the introduction and I figured I'll just, you know, cite something from the introduction. And this, this might happen to every uh, grad student that you talk to, but it's like, anytime that you set yourself up to be like, I just need one sentence, you're going to find something that makes it so that you're now writing 10 pages on this, which is like a blessing and a curse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I found this, this line and it said, um, Mary El Elnor Wilkins Freeman is actually related to someone from the Salem witch trials. And I thought, whoa, that's really cool. Like that's, I didn't expect that at all. Um, and the biographer says she's related to someone who was responsible for the persecution of women during the Salem witch trials. And I thought, okay, wow, um, interesting. And it has a citation. So I went and looked up at that citation and found out who this person was. His name was Bray Wilkins. And I, you know, did some research about who Bray Wilkins is. And I found out really quickly um, that Bray Wilkins was, uh, sorry, in, in the, in the um, biography, it says he was a judge who was responsible for persecuting women during the Salem witch trials. And so I found this name Bray Wilkins and I, I was kind of confused because I was like, I've never heard of Bray Wilkins before. There's only really a few judges that, you know, I you're, you're quite familiar with if you've done this for a bit um, or even just seen the crucible. So I looked up who Bray Wilkins is. So not only was he not a judge, so mistake there, but he was, so he didn't persecute anybody. He accused one person and it was a man and it was his <laughs> grandson-in-law. So his granddaughter's husband. And I was like, that's a really weird sentence to say, like, she's related to a judge who's responsible for persecuting women during the Salem witch trials. And I was, I, I started thinking, you know, I keep seeing this, this weird thing about Salem where people characterize it as being like, this is an anti-women thing. This was like, always misogyny is the reason for this um this was it was all old women and all um women who were poor who were prosecuted and persecuted um you, you hear this a lot like you see this on like tumblr and instagram you see like these like little images that are like where the daughters of the witches you weren't able to burn and things like that like i'm sure that's in salem like at all of the tourist shops and all this stuff but you do this enough and you start to realize that we've conflated the Salem witch trials with being this anti-women thing. And I, and I, I, that kind of like stuck out to me because I think that it's much, I mean, this is a perfect example where this was just false information that was printed because it fit this narrative of it always being, you know, a, a anti-women thing. So there were 14 people who died at Salem um, and of them, nine were women. So obviously the majority were women, but then, you know, even just like a couple of weeks ago, I was going to cite something and it said something about the same thing about how most of the women were um, widows, old, decrepit, like they couldn't, they couldn't support themselves. And that's why they were seen as the outcasts of society. And my like spidey senses tingled again. And I thought, I wonder if that's even true. And I started Googling and of the nine women that were hanged, um, only two of them were not married at the time. Um, a couple of them, their husbands were also accused of this. So, you know, uh, same thing. And of, you know, of the nine that were accused, uh, I think only two of them were, um, you know, not 
what we would say is like maybe um, uh, beggars or something, right? Like this is, mm-hmm. this is a very tiny sliver of people. And then also you have to think about, even though there were only nine people that were hanged, many more were accused, right? So, um, so, so this kind of like started to get my wheels turning about like, a lot of people have written things about Salem, but a lot of it is always from the perspective of this being an anti-women crime um, and this being a necessarily misogynistic thing. And I wanted to start looking at some of the characterizations of the men in who were affected, who accused, um, some convicted, some killed um, uh, as witches at Salem. And I thought that an interesting one to do would be Giles Corey because um, he is the only person who was they call it pressed to death so he had uh he would he refused to enter a plea because um and this is another thing that is like mythologized in a way that there's a lot of uh untrue things that become mythologized about Salem but one of the myths about him is that he would he refused to enter a plea because by even saying by saying I'm guilty or innocent, he would forfeit all of his assets to the state just by entering a plea. I have read uh, some papers about some, or by some um, law scholars who are very adamant that this is not true. That's not what would happen. Um, There's more at play there. And so that's something that I have to try and get into a little bit more, um, hopefully in my dissertation, if I can, if I can get there. But what happened was they put a, a board on him and they added rocks to the board um, and trying to get him to confess. And he would not confess and he died that way. And if you've seen The Crucible, uh, you know that Arthur Miller decided that one of the only thing he would say is more weight, which is like a really badass thing to say, right? Like if you're, yes. if you're being crushed to death and they're trying to get you to say, you know, confess, confess. And he just says more weight is the only plea he would enter. Um, that's completely also mythologized. There's no, you know, definite uh, historical record of him saying anything at all <laughs> um, during this. But I really like the, this idea of, uh, you know, I think he's a really interesting character in these plays. And then also, um, as a uh, historical character. And then the other thing that really shocked me about this when I was doing this research, so this is again back before I decided to only do Giles Corey and only do these plays. Um, So I started thinking about how a lot of the times these stories are done from, uh, are are interpreted and, and we kind of gloss over the men. And at this time, this kind of shows how long I've been working on this, but at this time, um, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were tweeting a lot about being the victims of witch hunts. And this was uh, a contentious thing, and it should be, obviously. But, you know, CNN ran like a an interview with a bunch of Wiccans where they were like, are you offended by this and stuff like they really tried to show that this is something that, um, you know, it's it's absurd that that they're claiming to be uh the victims of witch hunts, especially even if you weren't Wiccan, um, other others were writing about how uh, being in a position of power, it's upsetting for Trump to say that he's the victim of a witch hunt because um, he he wouldn't have been the victim of a witch hunt because he he's in power, right? And that all makes sense, except when I started to look at who the men were who were accused of witchcraft during the witch trials, I had a hypothesis that it would either be, it would be men that did not fit a masculine mold that the Puritans needed, right? So my understanding would be like, it was either men who exhibited some form of, um, you know, uh, 
they weren't heteronormative enough. So whether they were lifelong, lifelong bachelors in quotes, or they, um, uh, you know, uh, defended their wives when their wives were accused of of being witches rather than siding with the theo theocratic state. Um, I thought that these would be the only reasons that these men were accused. And that's not actually the case. It is true that men were accused because they defended their wives. Um, but what actually happened is the, the former where they didn't cleave to the the Puritan masculine ideal, but it wasn't because they weren't heteronormative enough, which I kind of interpreted as being like masculine enough, say, um, because for a Puritan, positive masculinity, we'll say, we'll use in today's terms, for a Puritan, an ideal positive masculine persona is someone who is even-tempered, um, quiet, pious, hardworking, um, not loud, drunk, violent, sexually deviant, um, boorish, uh, uh, crass, all of those things, those things enough were, sorry, those things by themselves were enough to get you accused of witchcraft. And of course, we understand that accusations of witchcraft in, in Salem were super political, super having to do with, you know, I really love that guy's land, but I hate him. He's a dick. So if I <laughs> like, if I say that he's a witch, maybe he'll go to jail and then I can buy his land at cost when, you know, the state sells it or when the, the, the town sells it. Um, so what, what ended up happening, and this specifically happened to Giles Corey is people would start to say things like, I saw him pick up a barrel of molasses by himself there's no way that he is swole enough to do that. Like he is, there's no way that he's strong enough to do this. He must be in pact with the devil. And whether or not Puritans in 1692 actually believed that the devil could like go inside of you and make you really strong, um, that doesn't matter. The, the point is that you could accuse someone of stuff like that. And your evidence was that, that you were really strong, um, that you were really quick tempered, that you beat your wife, that you beat your indentured servants. Um, that you did all these things that, in my opinion, actually are more, well, I think in an objectively too, are what we would consider toxic masculinity today, right? And if we are thinking of someone like Trump as an example of toxic masculinity, in some weird, strange way, he's actually a good candidate for someone who could be targeted by a witch trial in in that he has no idea <laughs> that that's why he could be targeted as a witch um but in a in a strange roundabout way he's actually you know the type of person he's very similar to uh, a someone like a Giles Corey who did um beat one of his servants to death um you know who was if, if his third wife was the woman who also died she was accused and also died um uh during the Salem witch trials and he is one of the reasons like he was spreading gossip about, about her because he was angry with her right like he it was like a resentful you know abusive thing um that was going on between them so this this was like such a weird coalescing of things that I did not intend to talk about at all like this was not I was not going to you know go into this particular character I was not going to go in particular about um the uh, gender aspect of it, but that's exactly where I've ended up.
Wow, this has been really, really interesting. And I wish I could ask you more questions, but we're actually almost out of time. I figured, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a really cool topic. And actually, uh, okay, fine. I'll ask one more question. And it sure. is, if people want to know about more of your research, where can they find you on social media? Sure. So I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle on Twitter is PhDWitch. Um, and you can also go to my website. It's just my first and last name.com. So carolinedeason.com. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was very, very interesting. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Megan Bull. And we've been speaking with Caroline Deason. And this episode was produced by Jordan Vanderbilt. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. And to listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.